0: You are listening to the Sermons podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn to the Book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter two. And the uh, because the chapter is a little bit long uh, this morning, I'm just going to read parts of of it to so we can gather the message and the. And the storyline of what's taking place here. But we'll begin, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation." Down in verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Look down in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Daniel went in and said to, thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon, bring me in before the king, and I'll show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. Now look down in verse 31. This is Daniel's message to the king. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, "...to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth." And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Let's pray together, and we'll look at the rest. Lord, thank you for your word today, and uh, we pray that, as always, for your help, Lord, in understanding, especially these messages, these dreams, um, we ask that your spirit uh, would... Illumine our minds and hearts to thinking that we might receive your word and you might apply it to our lives. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you might use me as as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If you were to... Be able to walk through the city of Babylon during this particular time, you would have observed a city largely of peace and prosperity. It would have been reflected all around you. Old Testament scholar Merle Unger helps us to picture the grandeur of Babylon. He says, Nebuchadnezzar's brilliant city included vast fortifications, famous streets like the processional, canals, temples, and palaces. The Ishtar gate led through the double wall of fortifications and was adorned with rows of bulls and dragons in colored enameled brick. Nebuchadnezzar's throne room was likewise adorned with enameled bricks, not far distant from the hanging gardens, which to the Greeks were one of the seven wonders of the world. How well the words of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 30, fit Nebuchadnezzar, the ambitious builder who said, it's not this great Babylon which I have built. To the royal dwelling place by the might of my power and to the glory of my majesty. If you were a visitor and you walked through the city, you, you would have seen this triumphant na- na- nation, all these beautiful pictures of peace and prosperity all around you. But what about behind the scenes? Well, that would be quite a different matter. These opening words of Daniel chapter two reveal to us kind of a different side of Babylon and, and the picture here is really one of a place of fear and helplessness uh, and, and really brutality that, that may have not have initially been visible to the eye. The fear is first Nebuchadnezzar's, right? Verse one tells us he was, his spirit is troubled over this a recurring dream about some kind of massive uh, metallic monster of a, of a statue that that in his mind had to represent something he just didn't know what it represented and then there was this supernatural stone that comes in and just wrecks this this monster and just destroys it all into pieces And so the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, he he gets up in the morning and he's trembling as he unbuttons his PJs. Now, when a tyrant like old King Nebu becomes agitated, everybody is on alert. Nobody's safe. Now, you remember it was said of Herod uh, when Jesus was born, in Matthew 2, that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. They're troubled because of Herod, that he's troubled. So when paranoid dictators were troubled, everyone is in danger. And here in Daniel chapter 2, it was the king's cabinet who were the most at risk. The magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, these are all the people that King Nebuchadnezzar surrounded himself with, gave counsel and guidance to the king. And it included Daniel and his friends. This is where the helplessness comes in. King Nebuchadnezzar, he summons all of these men together and he tells them, that that he commands them, they were to tell him what he dreamed about and give an interpretation of the dream. And if they didn't tell him, it was very plain, they would be torn limb from limb and their houses leveled. Talk about a helpless situation. And uh, many times such situations like this ended badly. This was behind the scenes. This was the brutality of life. In one sense, chapter 1, we read about cushy times that that, uh, Daniel and his friends, they're in the palace, they're eating all this good food. Life was fairly cushy there until the king gets agitated. And here in Daniel 2, all it takes is a dream. Just pause and think about this for a moment. We know that this dream was sent by God. We're going to uncover that, and it's really it's astonishing me to think about that. But does can you believe that our God's sovereignty stretches to even being able to put dreams in a man's head? Isn't that incredible? And the fact that the most powerful man in, in, in the world, that, that all God has to do to affect change in a king, change in an entire empire, is to put a dream in a man's head. Boy, if a dream from God can do all of that, just imagine what His coming will do. Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest man in the whole world, is scared out of his wits here. And Apparently apparently he has some sense that this dream, maybe because it's reoccurring, uh, that, that this dream is from God. And it, 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 whoever he is, I guess, according to Nebuchadnezzar, and that, that this dream might be about him. But he's not sure about it. He doesn't know if this is a nightmare or, or, or a dream. And he's really not going to know for sure unless he finds out. And so he's agitated. And that brings us to the theme of this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar's dream is a revelation from God. And it's not just about the kingdom of Babylon, but it's really about the kingdoms of the world. And, and the good news of chapter 2, I think the key verse is in verse 28, that, that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So what does this dream teach? What does God reveal to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel through this dream, and what implication does it have for us today? First, I think we should note that God reveals to us here the futility of pagan religion, the futility of it. This whole scene really is illustrative of, of the emptiness and disaster of, of what life apart from God looks like. That's what it's pictured for us. It's a picture of lostness. I mean, you, you've got an anxious, agitated, sleep-deprived, uh, paranoid dictator here. And his anxiety is increased by the fact that either in the text, it's not clear whether he can't remember what he dreamed about, and that's why he needs them to tell him, or that he remembers it full well, what he dreamed about, and he doesn't trust those around him to be honest with him. But in either case, despite his power and position, you have this picture here of King Nebu, he he is as lost as a child in the darkness. And so he commands his advisors both to tell him, again, the content of his dream and also the interpretation of it, or else they will find themselves in pieces. We can understand the objection, right, of his advisors here, verses 10 and 11. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is too difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Why does the biblical writer include this this exchange for us? I don't think it's because... I don't think it's so much because he wants us to think that Nebuchadnezzar is an irrational, royal nut job, right? We kind of gather that. But I think it's because these words here are essentially a confession of the failure of their system, isn't it? Not even our gods can, nobody can answer this. Nobody can do this, and and they're gods, only they could, but they weren't helping at all. Daniel essentially repeats this drift down in verse 27 when he says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. This is the writer's way of telling us that this this path is empty. This paganism, this pluralism, this, this godless kind of system or religion of denying God, turning to oneself, this is a helpless and hopeless pursuit. This is a dead end street. And, and, and in one sense, uh, he's, he's reminding Daniel and, and really all of his exiled children here that, 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 that there's no need to be awed by all of this paganism that you see. You see all of the enameled bricks of statues of gods and bulls and all of these things. Oh, don't be lured. By all of this trappings and gold and glitter, this is nothing but empty and dark. It simply cannot provide the answer. It looks great, but it's hopeless. It can give you no sure word about life, no sure word about the future. There is no peace in any of this, what you see here in Babylon. There's no meaning, and there's certainly no salvation in it. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So you got this contrast here in this chapter between this paganism that leaves you in the darkness and you have the God of heaven who is able to bring dark things to light, you see. And when Daniel hears of this danger, he calls his friends together. They have a prayer meeting Verse 18, Daniel tells them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of a night. So you have Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to the wisdom of the world for help. You have Daniel who's going to... The wisdom who is from above for help. And God reveals the contents of the dream. Now, if the story just continued, you could skip right down to verse 24 and the storyline would would just flow very nicely. But at this point in in the writer, he stops and records Daniel's acknowledgement of the greatness of God for doing this. Verse 19, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, here's his testimony. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows, God knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you've given me wisdom and might have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. It's a wonderful contrast here. You've got pagans who are, are driven by fear and insecurity and they're darkened in their own ignorance. They have, they have no sure light on the future. No idea of where human life and history are headed versus you have Daniel and his God, a God who reveals and discloses what is coming both in the muck of life And in the very climax of history, this God knows, he says. You know, as Christians, we ought to pause ourselves and think about this and the application of it. Because we are so blessed to have a God like this. You know, if you have a God like this, you can walk through this life. You can walk through the muck of life. You can walk through all kinds of things. You may be dealing with uncertainties in your life, many unknowns in your life. There may be situations or circumstances um, which you find that your knowledge is very limited and you wish you had more answers, you wish you had more knowledge about those things. But here's the truth, we have a God who knows even what is in the darkness, verse 22. We have a God who knows the end from the beginning who knows where all of history is going. And that doesn't mean that he always reveals all of this, all of the details of these things to us, but, but our God promises that his kingdom is unshakable, and so is your hope when you trust in him. We can keep going with a God like that, right? Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't put your trust in the government. Don't put your trust in other godless ideologies. You put your trust in the God of the Bible and his word. Well, secondly, through Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God reveals the the fragility of human power. And that scene, I think, in verses 31 through 43, Daniel goes to the commander of the guard and says, uh, uh, please don't start killing anyone. Take me to the king, and I'll give him the dream. And he goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and basically there's a little bit of an astonishment, I think, in verse 27. Nebuchadnezzar says to him, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream? And Daniel is quick to answer Verse 28, no, but there's a God in heaven who can. And then we get into this description of the dream. Daniel describes it and interprets for him. We've glimpsed it, we read about it. There's this, this mega metallic Uh, monster who is glistening apparently in the sunshine. He's glowing in the sunshine because in part because he's made of metal. His head is made of gold, his uh, uh, chest and arms were silver, his belly and thighs were bronze, his legs were made of iron and partly baked clay. And Daniel seems to indicate here that each part of this huge statue, that it represents successive kingdoms. Empires or kingdoms. And and I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar must have uh, beamed with pride when Daniel said, you're the golden head. Verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power the might and the glory and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens making you rule over them all you are the head of gold but notice this Daniel reminds him twice that he is that Nebuchadnezzar only has this spot because twice he tells him God has given it to you God has given. He says it twice. If you have power, might, and glory, Nebuchadnezzar, it is only because God has given it to you. In short, he's saying to him, the only reason you're on this throne is because the God of heaven has put you on this throne. I imagine Daniel maybe gulped a little bit when he said that but it gets a little worse. Verse 39, the text literally in the Hebrew reads something like this. It it, it says, but after you, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom, verse 40, a fourth kingdom. It's such simple words, isn't it? Again, but probably I can imagine Daniel being feeling some sense of what's going to happen to me after I say this when he tells Nebuchadnezzar after you. Your kingdom, Nebi, is not gonna last. There's gonna be other kingdoms kings, presidents, dictators, empires and and, and so forth that are coming. Just a word here. The temptation, I think, when we read Daniel, and we're facing it here, we're gonna face it in other places too, is starting to try to uh, figure out what all of these kingdoms mean, like which one of them they are. And... Some people will argue that the, the, the head, of course, Babylon, followed by the Medo-Persian empire, followed by the Greek empires, and then finally the Rome empire. And that, 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 thing, that very well may be true, but I want to caution you against that approach because the text doesn't tell us that, does it? And it's going to be tempting throughout Daniel when we come across passages like these to, to, to try to seek interpretations like this so that we can get lost in figuring out what, does, what do the ten toes mean in verse 41? I have no idea. We're not told. And and to do that is to veer from the main point. What is this dream teaching? Well, big picture. Just as, uh, first, just as Daniel reminded Nebuchadnezzar, it is God who gives earthly kingdoms glory and power. God does that. The same God who put Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold, by the way, can also bring Nebuchadnezzar down to the dust, right? Daniel's prayer, verse 21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. Secondly, it reminds us, I think, that with every earthly kingdom, there is always an after this. There's an after this. No, no earthly kingdom lasts forever. Each one of them will topple, apparently. Third, I think there's something of a a degenerative principle here as this is being described. You notice the progression as it goes from gold to iron uh, to to gold, the bronze, or silver, then the bronze, and then uh, to iron, and then down to clay. It was uh, Hill who in his commentary talks about each kingdom, its splendor dissipates. So it's gold going down to iron. It's dissipating, the splendor, but its hardness is increasing, isn't it, from gold to iron. And and so you have this, until you have this final kingdom, so there's a degeneration that's happening here, until you have this final kingdom, which symbolized by the bottom, the legs and the feet here that are made remarkably of iron and clay. Iron legs with clay kinds of feet and if you stand back and you look at this statue the big picture of it from from the standpoint of human history as a whole you, you begin to see that man this thing's getting ready to topple isn't it it reminds us that in the final analysis of things that the kingdoms of this world however glorious they might and powerful they might appear to us that at the end of the day they're standing on mere feet of clay That's a word to us, I think, of, of, of both comfort and warning. And it must have been for Daniel and, and his exiled friends. Once again, do not be impressed by p- human political power, no matter how much in the moment it seems like this is iron. Don't be wild by that. Don't be fearful of it either, because the kingdoms of this world are fleeting, the Bible says. It's easy to get fearful today, isn't it? And you feel helpless and insecure. Sometimes the church here on the earth seems very powerless and weak. And even our own lives at times seem that way. The evidence is uh, in our lives that we we go through seasons where we feel like there's little progress toward growth, little progress toward holiness. Holiness. Don't be dismayed. When our earthly hopes and dreams are in tatters and our lives are being crushed painfully under the reign of the kingdoms of this world, we need to remember that this world is not ultimate. It leads us to ask, well what is? When you look at this statue as a whole, again representing all of human history, you, 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 you begin to say, what is our hope then? Certainly it cannot be, the hope of history and the hope of our lives certainly cannot be in some new and improved version of this metallic statue. That Maybe we can do it ourselves, we can improve on it we can have a better government we can have a better new system we can we can do things differently we can employ worldly ideologies and it's going to get better and better that's not the picture here is it no we need something altogether different which brings us to the finality of god's kingdom the finality of god's kingdom We hear it first in Daniel's description of the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, verse 34, as you looked, he said, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. And not just that, they became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not even a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. What in the world? There's images here, I think, or allusions here to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. You may remember in Psalm 1 speaking about the destiny of the wicked. He says, they will be like shaft with which the wind drives away, he said. What's happening to these worldly kingdoms that look so mighty, so powerful, dominating in the world, what's happening to them here is not some accidental, it's not some kind of survival of the fittest kind of mentality. No, apparently, it's the outworking of the judgment of God on these nations, that God will bring them to nothing. Those that have turned from his laws and forsaken his way. He says, they will be broken in pieces, verse 35. That reminds us of Psalm 2 by the way, which was a promise given to Jesus. Here's a couple of verses. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You, speaking of the Messiah, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It helps us to understand what is this stone kingdom that he's talking about here. This stone kingdom is apparently a messianic kingdom. This, and it has several different features. Verse 44, very descriptive. It's an indestructible and infallible kingdom. And in those days, verse 44, of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It's an indestructible kingdom. It's an all-victorious kingdom that's eternal in its duration. Verse 44, again, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. But notice, it shall stand forever. It's eternal kingdom. It's a universal kingdom. Verse 35, again, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then verse 45 again, it will come about because of a mere stone. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. This stone he talks about cut by, with no human hand, it's a supernatural stone. And it's not acting in normal ways. It's marked by obscurity and, and, and apparent weakness. It, it, it looks like something you would set aside. It doesn't look like much at, at all. And yet the stone is gonna topple this monster and it's gonna grow. And we, we know that this stone represents Jesus Christ. He's the stone that crushes the kingdoms of this world. He's the Acts 4.11, he's the stone that the builders rejected, which became the cornerstone. It's a supernatural stone. You think about the Gospels, Jesus came in Mark 1, proclaiming the kingdom of God was at hand. In Luke 20, Jesus told the parable of the son of the vineyard owner, vineyard owner sent his sons to check on his vineyard. Do you remember they, the tenants rejected and killed the son? Jesus tells that parable, and then Jesus quotes Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected, talking about himself, has become the cornerstone. And then Jesus added these words from Daniel chapter 2. This is Luke 20, verse 18. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Do you see, Jesus was identifying himself as the stone of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. His kingdom, the kingdoms of the world advance by power and conquest. At least they think that they do. But the kingdom of God is inaugurated by Jesus' death and resurrection. It's inaugurated. And it looks like a mere stone. It just starts out so small like the parable of the mustard seed. Though it grows and it grows until it fills the whole earth Daniel said, "Revelation 11:15 says, "The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of His Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever." You see, this is the great hope that has encouraged the people of God. Over the centuries, right here from Daniel and his exiled friends all the way up to now, the people of God in their physical trials, in in very dark, under the reign of very dark empires, this truth that we have received a kingdom that shall not be shaken. This stone kingdom will triumph in the end And what great encouragement it must have been to Daniel and his exiled friends. What great encouragement it gives us today. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar, when he hears this, he falls prostrate before Daniel and confesses the greatness of Daniel's God. He doesn't seek the mercies of God. I don't think he was converted here, but he's certainly awed by it. And God transformed his wrath into praise. But the bigger question this morning is, will you hear and believe the message of this dream? Luke 20 reminds us that those who stubbornly refuse to submit to Jesus, who place their trust in any other source of salvation, that they will be rejected by him. Dugwood wrote it like this, those who refuse to recognize the cornerstone will be crushed by that stone. On the last day, they'll be blown away like chaff in Psalm 1. And so the message today, this is important, if you've never bowed your heart to Jesus Christ, And ask for forgiveness for your sins and his salvation. Now is the time to do that. This stone who is Jesus is coming again. And it will be a great salvation for his people. But for those who are not trusting in him. He will crush them. The Bible says. They will be crushed by his judgment. And so we must repent and submit our lives to Jesus today. Will you do that? Lord, thank you for this message from Daniel chapter 2. Lord, thank you for your revealing To Daniel this message and and that is confirmed and even understood better in light of our Lord Jesus Christ what's going on in the world where everything is headed may we be the kind of people who unashamedly confess and sing that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness this cornerstone who is Jesus Lord, encourage us as we respond, Lord, today. And we pray for those who don't know you that, Lord, if you're speaking to them, today might be the day of salvation when they turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast.